Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day and welcome along to episode 12 of the Howie Games. Great to have you on board. We are on tour this week. Giddy up! Coming to you from Namibia, one of the world's most spectacular countries. South Africa, head north on the west coast and you can't miss it. Come and check it out at some stage. However, this is not a travel podcast, as much fun as that would be. The show must go on and the Socceroos play Thailand next Tuesday in a World Cup qualifier. And I'm truly stoked to say this week's guest is the coach of the Socceroos, Ange Postacoglu. How are, you, how are you supposed to say that? Really? It looks too stupid. <laughs> we love Mr. <laughs> <laughs> we love Buster Posty Coggy Louie. Posty Goggy Louie. Is that actually how you say it? Mr. Poggle. <laughs> Mr. Post a Coggle. We can't say it, Pengy. It's too hard, Pickle. We love Ange. No. Thank you, you two. Now. Ange has a brilliant book out at the moment. It's called Changing the Game. I couldn't recommend it more highly. I read it in a couple of days. If you like sport, you're going to enjoy this read. It's about football and coaching and life and passion and never giving up. Changing the Game. Have a look. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. But to be completely honest, I wasn't exactly sure how this episode would go. I've only met Ange briefly once before in the green room on a Thursday night of a show imaginatively titled The Thursday Night Sports Show. And like a lot of the shows I've worked on, it no longer exists. Could be something in that for me. But anyway, I digress. Ange was really friendly that night, but generally seeing him over the years in press conferences, he doesn't seem to say a lot. He sometimes seems a little bit closed. Well, I needn't have worried at all. Simply, I loved having this chat with Ange. One hour, absolutely flew. He explores his family history, laughs a lot of himself, talks about some of the blobs that have cost him coaching jobs in the past and he's very very honest as well as talking about his passion for the game which he describes as an obsession a fantastic obsession at that enjoy getting to know the real Ange Postacoglu and go Socceroos oh my Jaja tell me why won't they open up their eyes they could help out if they try 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 if they would try, try, try. Well, this is fantastic to welcome to the Howie Games. The Socceroos coach who's just brought out a book, Changing the Game, Ange Postacoglu. Ange, firstly, great to sit down with you. Congratulations on the book. Yeah, look, it's um, one of those things I've always wanted to do. I'm an avid reader myself. I, mm. I mean, I love reading um, not just sports books, but books in general. And I guess uh, something I want to do. I wasn't really sure it was a... Uh, right time for a sort of an autobiography. I'm kind of hoping there's still a, a bit of a story to be told, but uh, just a little bit, I guess, about me and, and uh, you know, how growing up in Australia and loving, you know, a game that's sometimes been an outsider, uh, how it sort of shaped me. It's not an autobiography. and I read it last night um, and uh, it, it doesn't follow a chronological order. No. It's, um, but the first thing, and we'll start with the start in a minute, but the first thing that comes through is, geez, you've got a passion. Like, you've got an amazing yeah. passion for the game, haven't you? Yeah. That's the thing that really hits me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would almost call it an obsession. Yeah. Yes. It's, well, uh, I didn't want to use yeah, the word obsession, no. Ange, but that's I, what I'm, I thought. I'm pretty comfortable with it. I right. mean, I think when I think about my life and, and kind of everything that, that sort of stems from anyone's life, I guess you look at your relationships and, and the course you take and, and what you do and, it, and it, all of it sort of, the seeds of it begin with the, the love of the game and, uh, yeah, and it's kind of something I've questioned as I've, I've got older. Obviously, you, you, you think about, you know, why do I why do I have an obsession with this game? And uh, I guess that's sort of uh, the reason for, for, for writing the book. The book is changing the game. It's a, it's a beauty. It, it's not just a soccer book by any – in fact, it's not even a sport book uh, in yeah. some ways. Let's, let's go right back to the start um, because you weren't born in Australia. No. So tell me, if, do, you, do you remember much about your Greek background? Not really, no, because, I mean, we, we got here when I was five, so it's one of those where um, I guess my earliest memories, i got one or two vague memories of Greece, my earliest memories were here in, in Australia growing up. So how'd you end up here? What were your folks doing back at Yeah, so the old man uh, had a business over in uh, Greece, uh, had a few businesses, but uh, the last one he had was kind of a furniture, children's furniture making business, and uh, f- my understanding was it was, you know, um, 
quite a, a decent business and doing quite well. And then there was a bit of a, a change in Greece at the time um, with the government and they sort of started acquiring businesses and land and, and my, my father sort of fell into that. And uh, he just made a decision that he wanted something better for his family. Um, and uh, I guess uh, uh, the destination of Australia was one that came up and... Uh, we, we literally did not know a soul here. We, we, I mean, it was my mum, my dad, my sister, who's, you know, was 10 at the time, so she's mm. five years older than me, and, and myself, and no knowledge of the language. Um, at the time, you just needed to get sponsored by a, a family, and we, we managed to do that. And we ended up here, and uh, as I said, it, it kind of, for me, um, probably not as... You know, life impacting considering such a young age, but certainly was for my parents and my sister. It's crazy, isn't it? My mum came from England as a 10 pound pom, and obviously they had the language advantage. Mm. But I remember her saying, You know, we, we had no idea. We no. didn't know if there'd be kangaroos no. in the street. Like, it, when you hear a migrant story, it's incredible, isn't it? Because if you think now you pick up your family and move no. to Moscow, you, you just wouldn't Mate, consider it. We take my family on a holiday, and, and it does my head in. The, the stress <laughs> of it, I've got some, you know, I've got a couple of young ones, <laughs> and that stresses the hell out of me. And, and you're right, and, and this is, as you say, pre-internet days. They had zero knowledge of mm. what, what they were going to face. Um, Can you imagine what they thought when they got off the, the boat or the plane or whatever, motor transport, and you uh, arrive in a country and you don't know a soul, you don't have a house, you don't have any family, you don't speak the yeah, language? So, so you kind of question, well, is, it, is, is there such desperation that they're just willing to accept that, you know, it's got to be better than what it, what they left? I don't, I don't get that sense from my father. I... The conversations I've had with him, he's he always had a hankering to go back. I mean, he still feels that's his home, even though we've been here, you know, 45 years. Um, and I, I sense he left something he didn't want to leave. So even that, that makes the decision even more, mm. you know, it's kind of crazy. And, you know, look, I, it's hard for me to conceptualise. Like I said, in today's world, to just leap into the unknown and, and not really know what's on the other side is, um, I guess, uh, maybe maybe a little bit my father's sort of character and personality and, and maybe that bit of that's rubbed off on me in that, you know, in, in terms of my journey, particularly um, in the sport and, and, and the way I think. Uh, in a professional sense, I love leaping into the unknown, and I think that's probably a bit of him rubbing off on me. So, where do the Postacoglu's sit down as base? Where do you sit? Yeah, so, so we we arrived and, and landed in. Um, initially, we landed in a kind of a, a sort of halfway place called Bonagilla, which is Bonagilla. Yeah, in the middle of. Uh, I think it's in the middle of. Either South Australia or Victoria, I don't know. My sister tells a story. We came here by, so we came here by ship, took us 30 days, and it wasn't the love boat, let me tell you. It was, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, um, Bonagilla. So you come from, it's yeah, yeah. not like even Melbourne or Sydney. No, is no, it? no. We Bonagilla. landed, it was kind of like a, uh, oh, you know, like, like a holding a, station. Yeah, holding station, okay. correct. Yeah, yeah. So it's just to sort of integrate us. So we were there for a little while, and yeah, like I said, I, I can't even remember. My sister tells the stories, and and, and my mum and dad, and then from there we we came to Paran, and um, yeah, we we shared a house with another family in uh, in Paran, just behind uh, Chapel Street, where, where Jam Factory is now. And uh, to be fair, we never left there probably till you know for another twenty years. We we moved a couple of houses, bought our actual first house in in Windsor, and. Um, yeah, we, we, we kind of, that's, that's, that's where I grew up. So you're obviously coming as a, a young fellow with hardly any memories. You're not speaking English, I presume, at this stage. No. So no. you're only I mean, five. Yeah. So yeah. You're, you're probably one that adapts the quickest. Absolutely. I was probably struggling with any language at five. Yeah, right. so, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so my integration into, in, the, in the school and I guess into society was the easiest of the whole families because mine was basically, you know what, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a little boy, I'm... I'm you know, first day at school, like every other little boy at school and little girl, and we all had the same sort of challenges. My sister was already in school in Greece, so she had to learn the language mm. and, you know, come in at, you know, I think it was grade five or grade six at the time, and my parents had to get to work. So, yeah, mine, mine was the easiest, I guess, uh, transition. And I think that affected me, for not affected me, but that really influenced me for a long time because I didn't really feel a strong tie to Greece at all. My, my ties were all here. I wanted to fit in here. I wanted... I wanted to be Australian. I wanted. Uh, I liked Australian music. I, I liked Australian food. I, I wanted nothing to do with Greece. Whereas the rest of the family still had a little bit of a tie with where we came from. So, what did your dad do? He, he's not speaking the language. He doesn't know. Yeah. Him. So How, he, he started. I mean, he obviously knew a trade, and um, yeah, he was a he was a sort of cabinet maker, furniture maker, and um, you know, he, he got to know a few people, and uh, 
picked up bits and pieces of work around the place <laughs> and uh and mum just did odd jobs as well you know she was a machinist or you know a dressmaker and again she just you know pick up work where you can i mean i my memories of my parents at that age were they just they were constantly working mm. that's all you remember you know uh, whether it was day or night uh, at home or you know outside they were just constantly working so what's your first memory of what's now as you said at the start turned into a bit of an obsession what's your first yeah. memory was your old man was your mum into into, nah, into the footy? Old, it was the old man mate it was was he um, was his yeah, name uh, uh, jim yeah right. um he uh you know and i've i've try to sort of, you know, bring it together in my head as to, you know, what was that link. He loved it. He obviously loved the game. Um, being in a, I guess, in a foreign country, I, when I came here, I, I wanted to play, I wanted to get involved in Aussie rules. Growing up in, in Melbourne, um, he couldn't help. So I, you know, picked the team straight away to my internal regret, Carlton. And, uh, had all those choices, Ange. Yeah, you had all, you could have jumped To be jumped fair, on. in the 70s, we yeah. were all right. We were going well. You could have jumped Seven, on the Hawks. No, no, 70s and 80s were good. They uh, were. were. Very good times. And um, I'll tell you what else it was. It was the fact that my favourite player was Jezza, you know. And I figured if... If they could accept a guy with a name like Jezalenko, mm. Poster Coglu wasn't too far off the <laughs> spectrum that I could be one of them, you know. So, um, so yeah, so I, I, I wanted, you know, so much, you know, I loved Aussie rules. I loved my cricket um, and I wanted to get immersed into that because that's what all the other kids were doing. To describe yourself as a cricketer? Uh, oh, I was I was all-rounder, mate. I loved it all. Right. Yeah, but, I, I, again, you know, summers... And it's, you know, life's different these days. Mm. But we'd be outside school holiday time. I seriously, from, I think, the morning till, till you know, daylight savings kicked in, 9 o'clock playing cricket out in the street. I, I loved it. I was, And it was just the street kids. We would basically, you know, bowl, bat, do whatever, you know. Um, and was your dad asking so, you, what are these games, son? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even beyond that, he was, he was almost questioning, you know, why I was playing these games. Soccer for him was a little bit of home. And he wanted to maintain some sort of link to his son in this foreign land. And, and he thought, you know, the easiest way I can keep him close to the values that, that he believed in and the culture was to for us to be united in that sport. So he kind of nudged me that way all the time and sometimes actually pushed me that way. So if there was any sort of me um, looking like I'm going to you know, get involved in another sport, he, he'd quickly bring me back into line and... I mean, it wasn't a bad thing for me because then, like every, I guess, young boy, I wanted to have an attachment to my dad. Yeah. And I didn't see a lot of him. And I kind of describe in the book that Sunday was was the day because dad, during the week, he was tired, he was fairly grumpy, you know, he, he'd come to, you know, I didn't see him, the only time I saw him was at the dinner table and, it was, you know, after a hard day and he, he wouldn't say much and then get off to bed and he'd be off in the morning. So, but Sunday was different. Sunday was, he'd sleep in, you know, we, we'd sit there together and, and people of my generation will remember this, but, you know, our Sunday ritual was breakfast in bed, world championship wrestling on the on the TV, um, sitting there with the old man watching, you know. Who was your hero? Uh, well, there was a Greek guy, Spiros Arion, at the time. Of course, and, there was. Of course, yeah. So uh, he was he was our man, and but you know we loved it. You know we we'd sit there. I, I used to love a Sunday, and then I kind of knew when when um, you know World Championship Wrestling was finished on Channel Nine that uh, it meant there was about an hour to go before we head down to the ground and watch South Melbourne play. And I loved that time, mate. Just sitting in the car with the old man it was just me and him. And then as we'd walk through the gates at South Melbourne Hellas at the time, which was a, a migrant, it was a Greek-backed club that wasn't just a sporting club, it was a social sort of hub for people like us. Is this still at Lakeside Park? Yeah, in those days, yeah, yeah. Right. Middle Park. It was where the Grand Prix runs through pretty much now. Yep. As soon as he walked through those gates, he was a different person, mate. He was, like, really sociable and engaging with everyone and he was really passionate about the game and he'd be animated and I... I, I that was, to me, my real dad, and I'd never saw him during the week. Oh. So when I got a glimpse of that, I go, yeah, look, I want a part of that. So the more time I could spend with him, um, and the game was the thing that was the glue, um, the more I sort of fell in love with the game. My kids, Ange, are six and four, and they're at that beautiful age where they don't care about what anyone thinks. They're not at that stage of 
having the right clothes or the right haircut or just wanting to be the neutral to fit in with all their mates. And I dread the day that that comes because you have that 15 years when you want to fit in and you look back and think, why didn't I want to be an individual? How how important was that to you? As you mentioned, a surname that was probably different to most blokes at school to just just slide in there and be another fella. Yeah, and that was was my challenge. So at home I had, you know, this real um, desire to get close to my father, which meant standing out even more because I couldn't go to school and say I love soccer because that made me even further outsider. So, What was soccer at that point? Uh, it was, uh, I guess, um, f- even at school, it was like, um, for me, um, it was a school team that, you know, pretty much the kids who didn't play footy were playing right. soccer and, and it was pre, you know, any sort of National Soccer League day. So it's in the, you're talking about in the early 70s and the game was very much a migrant sport and and in many respects a sport that people didn't really embrace at all you know you were suddenly if you said you liked it or loved it you were kind of casting yourself almost as an outsider Mm. so that was a contradiction with me trying to fit in at school so at school i'd be you know i'd wear my carlton jumper and at playtime would you know would, would play kick to kick and uh and and like i said in 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 the in the summer, we you know I'd, I'd join the cricket team and. What about like um, I remember going to school with a little Italian guy and his lunch was completely different. Yeah, oh yeah. But his lunch yeah. was different, yeah. and to me it was a fascination. But then I can remember a lot of other kids, you know, why eating this, why eating that. Like, did you have all that going on? Absolutely, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I mum used to not half the time I'd throw it away, you know, and and, and right, you know, that'd break your mum's heart. If oh, you knew oh that, absolutely. It? Oh, I can just imagine, <laughs> and 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 how, how you know now, you, like I said, you, you, as you get older, you kind of realise, and it was good food, mate. Of course. You know? it was. But it was different, you know. So I, I'd, I'd line up and try and get because I, I, I hated meat pie. So I'd line up and get my sausage roll so I could look like everyone else. Because <laughs> you couldn't cop a pie. No, <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't get the pie. Uh, never have. Um, but yeah, it was. It was. You know, you just didn't want to stand out, mm. and, and it was just for me. You know, it was just. And sport was the easiest way because, you know, as boys, that's the easiest way we can sort of integrate. And uh, I just threw myself into anything that I thought was going to be acceptable, almost leading a little bit of a double life uh, up until a certain age. The thing that really surprised me is I I, I sort of was reading your book and looking through and all of a sudden I'm thinking, well, you'll get to sort of 25 and you'll wind up at South Melbourne, you might take on a coaching job. But no, Ange, you you took it on at age 12. 12, yeah. (laughs) You got off to a flyer. I, I, I fell in, I fell in love with with sport, but not just on the field. And and the beauty of growing up here was that, um, I mean, it was obviously tough to get sort of real news on on soccer at the time. So was it uh, just in the back of the paper with scores? It, it or? was pretty much the funeral notices, and then <laughs> soccer was next. So and it was all to be fair, it was always on that precipice whether it would <laughs> tip over to the funeral notices at, at different times. So. Um, so yeah, so and you literally you'd get a column or maybe a few words and uh, just the results and, and and that was it. But um, when the bug hit me and it hit me pretty early in terms of loving the game, the obsession with the game, I wanted to know everything about it. I wanted to know not just on the field. I wanted to know off the field. I wanted to know about coaching. I wanted to know about strategy. I read about you know dynasties of clubs and legacies and all that kind of things. And that included and then because growing up here. Um, Included the other sports, so you know I was fascinated by, you know, the coaches here at the time, Alan Jeans or Tom Hafey or Ron Barassi, and because they were easier to read uh, from. By the age, of, I think I say in the book, I think I was eight or nine. I used to get twenty cents lunch money, and uh, I used to spend eight cents of it buying the Sun at the time in the morning. So you can imagine, and like I said, you're young kids, like mm. an eight-year-old with the Sun under their you know, their arm in the morning reading the paper. And, and I remember the teachers say, what the hell are you doing reading the paper? But those back pages for me were, oh, I loved it. I, I read every little bit of it. And, and most of it, like I said, was, was other sports, but I could relate it somehow then back to, to soccer. And I, I, I loved that whole aspect of what happens beyond the field, even at a young age. So when I get to high school, 
And really, literally, the the soccer team there is, you know, you get the hand-me-downs of last year's Aussie Rules team, the, the sleeveless woolen. It's a ripping photo. Jumper. It is. Oh, mate. In the game. We, we, it's last year's footy jumper. It is, absolutely. You know, with the, those woolen itchy ones. They too. were, they were <laughs> sleeveless. And the tight shorts. Um, it was a shocking look. We almost wore it as a badge of honour because they'd see us coming, they'd go, these guys can't play. And, <laughs> and, and, and we were just a bunch of Greek and Italian kids who could play, you know, so it kind of worked out well. But... You know, when I went to Paran High School and, and really we were an afterthought, the soccer team, and then the music teacher was assigned our coach and I remember the first training session, you know, we had a couple of balls from last year and a, you know, a couple of cones and we started playing and then the teacher sat down under the trees and started marking the homework for tomorrow. I go... This is the coach? Yeah, yeah, supposed coach. Um, I go, no, that's not going to do. I said, I'll take charge here. And as a 12-year-old, I, I literally became the, the coach of the team. I, I set up training. I, I set up the team and how we were going to play. And I guess part of me goes, what what was in me at that time to mm. feel that I, I felt comfortable in the space? But even more bizarre for me is that my mates who are still, some of them are still mates today, actually listen to me. I'm going, because in a social sense, I wasn't the leader, you know, in the playground. I was just one of the kids. But when it came to that, they just said, you just seemed like you knew what you were talking about. So we just did it. And uh, yeah, it kind of was the start of the coaching career. All the way to a state championship? Yeah, yeah. We won the, the state high school championship. Yeah. Which was, again, we, like I said, we wore it as a, as a badge of honour that we, this ragtag bunch of guys with cast off shirts. Um, yeah, came and, and well, won the well, championship. How's the opposition going when they've been? I don't know who coached them, but they're. Yeah, I know. You like 12 year old. Your coach's yeah, speech yeah, as a 12 yeah, year yeah. old? I was. I was giving the half time. Well, the music teacher had no idea. He, <laughs> he was he was kind of sitting there. He was quite impressed, I think, by the end of it. He's going, Angie, you're going all right here, you know? There might be a future for you. But uh, yeah, it was like everyone just seemed to to accept, it. and we certainly did, you know? And I think there was a little bit of that in us that, you know what? Um, even our own school doesn't sort of respect us, but uh, we're we're a bunch of kids that you know with a twelve-year-old coach that'll go all the way. Did your dad get to see any of those games? Was he always at work? No, nah, he was at work. He yeah, so he right. kind of missed it, but he, he he you know he he understood kind of that by then the the the, the bug had bitten me, and uh, he was quite happy to to encourage it, and and uh, you know he, he he struggled a little bit to understand why the school didn't have a coach and why we didn't have jumpers and all that, but uh, he was quite happy to let me run with it. As a player, we'll get to the coaching, but as a player, what type of player were you? Were you good? Mate, it was... uh, I explained it to people in the book. I had a real frustrating playing career because I... My obsession with the game was that I kept reading about all these great things and great possibilities that you could do in the game, and... I knew my playing career wasn't going to do that for me. I just felt really frustrated because I, I didn't think I, I didn't feel I was good enough to reach the heights that I wanted to. So I, mean, I ended up playing for the Socceroos um, mm. yeah, three or four times, but it was always a battle for me. Um, knowing that I couldn't do what I wanted to do, um, it was a frustrating experience. Not that I, I had some great highs. I mean, obviously, we won a couple of championships. I captained the club. At South Melbourne. At South Melbourne, yeah. Which is a special thing when you've been there, as you said, it's the relationship oh, yeah, between that, you and your dad. Yeah, All of a sudden, yeah, you're captain. That was my dream. Way. That was, you know, that was my goal, to play for South Melbourne one day. That's the club that I was ball boy for, that, you know, <laughs> me and my old man used to go and watch together. So that was, you know, I remember my first game, at, I think I was 17 uh, at the time. I, I couldn't, I was blown away that I was actually running out on, on this pitch, uh, you know, playing for, for the club. I loved. Um, and was your dad there to watch those games? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, was that a special great, thing? Yeah, they, it was. Um, it was kind of also the beginning of, I guess, of a little bit of a, you know, a, a, a kind of funny relationship between me and my dad because the, from then on it, 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 our relationship changed a little bit in that uh, he became really hard in terms of his assessment of me right. uh, and, and um, it might have been his way of trying to get me to be the best I could be but... The playing career was never going to do it, and I think my dad got a little bit frustrated with that. Um, so, you know, he was very, very uh, critical of me during that time. So there was a sense of pride, I guess, initially, but then our relationship kind of changed a little bit, and you know, it was it was one of those of me trying to constantly, um, you know, seek approval from him and him and. and in my eyes, me never being good enough to to sort of fulfil what he thought I could do. So you you're playing a fair bit of footy. You're playing at a good level. Your first game for the Socceroos. 
what what was the kit? Who are you playing with? Who are you playing against? How do you find out you've been picked? Yeah, like, I, you said you weren't that good. You played for the Socceroos. Yeah, you represented country, Ange. Yeah, it's pretty that handy. Was, yeah, that was at the age of um, the age of twenty. So I, I was ridiculously young. Mm. Um, yeah, and, we, and first game was here in Melbourne. We played Olympic Park against uh, the old uh, Czechoslovakia back right. then. Um, and again, I, I, you know, I couldn't believe that I was I was being selected. It was obviously a proud moment. I was going to walk out there and sing the national anthem. And I, I don't know, and people might find it hard to understand, but I just felt like a little bit of an imposter. I just didn't think I deserved to be there. I, not a deserve. I probably deserved because I, I, I worked hard in it. And I was obsessed with the game. I didn't think I was good enough to be there, and that. That didn't sit well with me. Um, because of your knowledge of the game? Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's what made it tough. And, and I know people will say, well, you're only 20, what do you know? But you got to understand that my obsession was that much that I kind of knew. I, I made a self-assessment that was pretty brutal that I wasn't going to reach the heights, even though at 20 I was representing my country. So, But I loved it. Um, you know, they, we played against – and I played okay against Czechoslovakia and um, kind of – sort of kicked off a little bit my, my international career and I was in and around the squads for a few times but I never really cracked it out for, for a regular run. Did you travel the with the squad? Did you play games overseas? Uh, we, we play, uh, yeah, we just mainly in Australia and a couple of games against New Zealand um, and, uh, yeah, never really, got, uh, never really got beyond that. How outrageous was the Socceroos uniform at that stage? Because, Ange, probably till about 10, 12 years ago, there used to be some... Yeah, I missed that shocking era. Right. Uh, back then, it wasn't too bad. If I remember correctly, I, it was Adidas or Br- okay. Umbro. So it was, it was a decent kit. No, no. It was, you it was that sort of Ned Zelich type? Yeah, and, and, you know, I speak to guys, a lot of them are good mates, and, you know, the hardest part of playing for Australia at that time was the post-game, because in, in our game, you swap shirts... There weren't too many, too many willing participants in that, and you almost felt embarrassed to say, "Look, I really want your shirt. Do you really want this?" You know, and there were many times where uh, you know some of my mates tell the stories where the guys go, "Yeah, here's a shirt," and they go, "Look, don't worry about yours. You can you can keep that as well." You know, uh, again, that was the evolution of the game where you, you know, can keep yours. Yeah, um, we just we went through some really funny periods, um, but uh, at the time we. As a, as a nation, we were still – we had that Aussie spirit in us. We are still you know, punching above our weight. Um, Frank Eric was the coach and he he kind of built this sore around the national team at the time of uh, the Mad Dogs because um, they were. They were these hard-nosed Aussie immigrants who uh, would take a game to any opposition. Not what, what, what is this um, – because I, I don't have a massive background mm. in football. Is this sort of Farina and Yankos yeah, and these correct, guys? Yeah, correct, correct. Yeah, Farina, Yankos. Who I mean, Charlie Yankos score that goal against? Yeah, it's Argentina. Right. So, yeah, I was in the squad that game. Right. Okay. That I mean, sticks in my mind. That's absolutely. probably my first footy yeah, yeah, memory. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was the Bicentennial Gold Cup, so it was 1988. Right, and, uh, that'd be right. I was yeah, 13, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, it was an unbelievable night. We won 4-1 and he's bang on in the top corner. And if you look at that team, they were literally – Argentina. Literally part-timers. I mean, all those guys probably had jobs during the day. You know, they're all tradesmen or milkmen or whatever. And, uh, yeah, we smashed Argentina 4-1. And it was – I remember that night. It was incredible. It was almost like – almost a coming of age of the game in terms of, as you said, you know, probably guys like yourself who, yeah. had, who weren't attached to the sport all of a sudden. Uh, the consciousness of, hold on a sec, we actually Absolutely. play this game as well. Because I remember the next morning I was rooming with a guy called Vlado Bosnovsky who also scored on the night. And he was going to be on morning TV the next morning in uh, room together. And I thought, geez, that's mainstream TV we're mm. going to be on. And and you kind of realised that you know, how, you know maybe the game's growing up a little bit. Um, it was it was yeah it was it was uh, it was a kind of pivotal pivotal time in the game. So who tells you, or do you tell yourself at South Melbourne that you're done, mate? Yeah, no, that, I mean that, you kind of. Yeah, life teaches you lessons, and and mm. a lot of the things that, you know, I, I, the decisions I make now are, are based on my own experiences. And probably the hardest part of my career was the end because no one, you know, I had a knee injury and I really struggled. I was out of the game for twelve months, came back, but what wasn't really the same player. I mean, it, the things that I was blessed with, the athletic ability I had, was totally gone. And no one wanted to tell me. I think mainly because they felt sorry for me. So they kind of – my last game for South Melbourne after, you know, almost 200 games, captain in the club, two championships, was, you know, playing in the reserves in front of 20 people on a Sunday. And I kind of thought, nah, this is this is over, you know. Um, this is not what what I want anymore. And 
the club were, you know, they, they were really good. They, they kind of said, look, you know, you know, we'll leave it up to you. But no one really tapped me on the shoulder. And that, that kind of left a bit of taste in my mouth as well because I'd, I'd much rather mm. people were honest with me and said, look, you know, you, you're not you're not going to get back to where you were. Maybe you should make some decisions. And I kind of just literally limped out of the game and um, as a player and, and was, you know, I, I was pretty bitter for probably 12 months. Um but at the same time, I, I kind of knew that's, that wasn't my purpose. You know, coaching was and just made an earlier start than what I thought. More of Ange Postacoglu in a moment. Now, next week's episode of the Howie Games, well, in some ways, it's a bit of a departure from the norm. It features a young man by the name of Jake Edwards. You may not know Jake. He's a former AFL footballer who has a story to tell that's part tragic, part inspiring, part courageous and partly frightening. For me, I guess amongst other things, it was a great education into the struggles faced by those who deal with mental health issues. It, for me, it was never about the drinking and the drugs that was the problem. It was the, it was the depression and why I felt like I needed to drink and do drugs because I was escaping that who I was inside and that who I was was that pain of um, failure and letting people down and all that type of stuff so I was drinking to get away from that reality Jake Edwards next week on the Howie Games back to Ange as you say you you shaped you know you as the coach uh, recently against Japan here in Melbourne you're shaped by every experience you've had and you talk about, I think actually comparing your book, What Happened to You, and, and having to sit down with Lucas Neal, who, you know, proud Aussie fellow, had done an amazing job, played top flight everywhere. And you had to have that conversation with him. And you relate back in your book that you were trying to avoid having happened to Lucas, what happened to you. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a tough one because, I mean, no one likes, no. You know, no one likes to be told, even if, it's, even if it's staring you in the face, that you get to a certain point as an athlete that... You know, you kind of feel like you'll know, and and sometimes you don't. Um, yeah, my, I, I, you know, when I when I took over the coaching, I, I, I guess that I felt that was my responsibility from then on. That I was always going to make those decisions, uh, knowing that it's coming from the right place. Um, it's kind of shaped the way I, I I deal with people and coach. I I kind of keep a little bit of a distance between myself and, and particularly the players. I don't really get close to them because I just think human nature, you're going to like someone more than somebody else. And I, I never want those kind of decisions tainted by how I feel maybe about that person. It's got to be difficult though. Yeah. It, it, Especially when you're going in the heat of battle with these blokes. Yeah, it can be. Together yeah, it can it. be. But, but you you you, you like I'm pretty disciplined in that. I, right. I think I always take it back to that at some point I've got to make a real tough decision here and I think I owe it to that player to make that really um, without anything being blurred. Um, so, you know, whether that's you know, a Lucas Neal decision or, or, or something like that, I, I can only do it from the place where I'm thinking that's the right thing to do uh, at this point. How do you do it? We're seeing AFL clubs at the moment. Um, the Hawthorne Football Club here in Melbourne are grappling with winding up a couple of champions and they've done some of it well and other people have criticised us. Mm. So what do you do with a bloke like Lucas who's not just a player but he's the captain and I remember leading into that there was six months of discussion should he still be here, should he still be playing Mm. I think it was the Costa Rica game might have been his last game and the whole lead up which is sad at the end of a career is should he be there or not which is not the way no, absolutely. The elite athletes want to be going out. So absolutely. do you just sit him down? Are you brutally honest? Do you try and sort of pad around? Or what do you do? Well, that was, uh, yeah, as I explained in the book, that, uh, it's probably, it doesn't sit well with me in the way I did it. Um, at the time, we were we were leading into a World Cup and, you know, I was, you know, I was literally all over the place trying to get things done. Um, you know, I, I had six months in the job trying to get a team together. And I thought with Lucas, I had to make a fairly early call with him because I thought if I make a decision that he's not going to be there and I'll leave it late to when the squad's announced, then that all the talk's going to be around that, and and the actual squad announcement, the other players will get sort of, you know, in the backwash a little bit. So I thought I had to make the call a bit earlier. And looking at my schedule, I actually sat down with David Gallup and Frank Lowe. I said, you know, should I? I think I should fly over because he was in the UK trying to play, get back in, and sit down with him. You know, um, but we ju- I just couldn't get the time, and I ended up ended up being a phone call with a time difference. I remember for me it was like one in the morning and. Um, where I could finally get a hold of him. And it was a, I explained the book, it was a pretty mm. bizarre sort of phone call where, you know, I'm, I'm telling this guy who, he didn't see it coming, to be fair, and um, I think he felt like, you know, he was doing enough. Um, I kind of 
we went through the pleasantries and I had to be fairly brutal and just say, look, I've made a call, I've made it early, um, that you won't go, be going to the World Cup. And, you know, and I kind of, my whole framing was that, look, out of respect to him, I wasn't going to announce anything publicly. I wanted him to give him the opportunity to frame the message any way he wanted. And, and even if it meant that he wasn't happy with it and he wanted to come out publicly, I was prepared to wear that. Um, but he... You know, he was he was yeah, it was it was a funny phone call because at the end of it, he he kind of said, you know, well, you know, he obviously didn't agree. He goes, look, I'm not going to say anything, and he goes, but look, I'm playing next week, so um, if you change your mind, just give me a call. So it was the first time I kind of got off the call phone or, or made a decision like that, and it was almost like the player did not accept my decision. So <laughs> it was it was it was. Uh, you yeah. told me I'm sacked, but I'm going to play really well next week. Yeah, and correct. I'm here when you change yeah. your mind, and I kind of questioned at the time: did it really register what I said to him? But yeah, the decision was made, and I don't. Yeah, I, I didn't. I still, it doesn't still sit well with me because after such a career and, and him being captain, it should have been. Yeah, I probably should have sat down with him. Would the outcome be any different? I, I, I very much mm. doubt it because he was in that sort of headspace, but. Um, I don't regret making the call uh, in terms of the decision. I think it was the right decision uh, for where we were at. Um, and I think it was the right decision for him as well because I felt he was carrying too much of a burden at the end. Like, it seemed like... Just seeing his interviews, Ange. Yeah. He was just on the defensive straight yeah. away. And, 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 and I, I, I think, you know, we, we... I'll tell you what, the English you know, football soccer team is going through a similar thing too to where they place so much emphasis on this captaincy bit. Rooney. International. Yeah, absolutely. That it almost became like in a cricket sense what the captain means and in in in, in soccer that's not that's not how it should be and and I think over time um, Lucas took it upon himself that if the team played bad it was almost like he had to be the spokesman and, and I, I remember having it because the, the Costa Rica game was sort of when he you know had a go a bit of at the crowd who were having a bit of go at that's him right, by that right, stage yeah, and I remember, yeah. I remember t- pulling him aside I said mate that's that's not your burden to carry that's me that's I'm the coach if the team doesn't do well I, I'm the one that carries that why do you feel that you know, but that's the way things had been shaped to that point. And um, if anything, I think that probably detracted towards the end of his career, you know, what he had actually done for his country. There's so... Uh, we've already gone half an hour, and I can, this is going to be a ripping episode, which is why people need to get on and get to have a look at that book, Changing the Game, that Andrew's put together. Um, we're going to have to skip forward a little bit. Go for much, Because otherwise we're going to have you here in four and a <laughs> half right. hours' time, and you've got, you've got uh, things to do. And I won't shut up, mate. No, no, no well, well, neither will I. <laughs> um, so y- y- you go through coaching and you're involved with the junior national teams. It goes pretty well. Mm. After seven years, you get the arse? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah, there's no other way of describing it yeah and then sort of the a league's coming around and so we've got how many all of a sudden new teams you probably think you're a fair chance i thought so yeah, yeah. yeah I, I thought so and uh yeah look yeah the, the 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 youth team national youth team stuff didn't didn't end well um it was a fantastic experience for me right that was seven years where i literally I call it the. I did a PhD in coaching mm. because i traveled the world i saw the best and worst of the game uh, at the coalface. Um, I took every opportunity I could to educate myself, to talk to people. Uh, if I was in, you know, Brazil, Argentina, France, Holland, we'd play a game, I'd, you know, I'd sit down and find somebody just to talk to. Hmm. So I felt so much more equipped at the end of that tenure than I did even at South Melbourne, even though I'd had success uh, in my first four years of coaching. I, I realised by the end of that that I was still very raw back then. I'd, I'd much better coach, much more well-rounded. So you've done your apprenticeship. You, Absolutely. You're ready to go to that next step now. And I'm unemployable. Right. You know. So, uh, so how, how, do you apply for jobs? They just say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so why do you get knocked back? A couple of reasons. One is, uh, and, and if you probably, if you Google my name, might still be the first thing that comes up, was an interview I did on SBS. Right. That didn't paint me or anyone else. Was that with Foster? Yeah, Craig Foster. That didn't paint me or anyone else in a great light. I've seen um, that, Ange. Yeah. It was, it was ugly. Awkward. Yeah, yeah very. Are you saying okay. to me that the performances of your team in this qualification mm-hmm. series over the course mm-hmm. of the games was good enough? Mm-hmm. No. Well, and I take responsibility for that. So okay, well, what's what, what? So, hey? so so what do you want me to do? What do you, you want me to say? Well, that, I think you should put uh, your hand up and walk out because you're paid to qualify that, oh, well, the team and you haven't done it that, twice. That probably now. says 
that's probably says more about you than it does about me. Well, uh, Craig, it says, it says a lot a, about our football. I don't sit in glass houses. Our standards. Mate. I'm out there. Well, mate, listen, if I, what I'm saying yeah. is if I didn't qualify the team you twice there, like you, I'd put my hand up and I'd yeah. walk out because that would happen in most other countries. Well, I don't have I'll to be what, there. I, I watched it. Give us the gist of what happened. Well, it was kind of towards, well, it was the end of my, my tenure and um, yeah, at the time Craig Foster and, and SBS were pretty outspoken in in saying that I'd failed. And He was I, very outspoken, Craig very, Foster. Yeah, he really. was. Um, and he kind of targeted me at the time and I kind of knew going into the interview because I didn't have to do it, um, but I was always kind of a guy who, you know, I'm not going to run away from everything, anything and going into it, I'd already been told that I wasn't going to continue, um, that that was going to be the end of my tenure. Um it wasn't public at the time, but uh, I'd, mm. I'd already known. So, and and the people kind of at the organisation said, "Look, they're not going to really have a go at you. They just want to, you know, do a little bit of a summary of the last tournament, and and you know, they won't discuss your future because we've told them not to." So I thought, well, "Look, I don't care. I'll just go and do it." But you know, I sat in this studio, and I wasn't even in the studio with them. You know, I was, you know, when you do those kind of things, you, you're doing it on a feed, and I'm staring down the barrel of a camera, can't see them. Just an earpiece in your ear. Earpiece in the ear. And, and makes it off, hard. Yeah, and off he goes. And um, What did he say? What's the gist of what he said? Basically, I think by the end of it, he wanted me to resign, you know, on... Yeah, you know, uh, on the show and and, and sort of uh, accept his uh, position that I was uh, that I'd failed and I wasn't going to do that. And you and you went back. Yeah, 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 I wasn't going to do that. Um, you know, I, it wasn't fair me to answer to him. I, I answered to other people. Decision they already made, but that's not up to him. Um, Obviously. And uh, you know, it, like I said, it, I, I didn't like the whole thing. I don't think that's what. Um, you know, analysis and, and, and sort of discussion around football. Whether I mean, I'm prepared for criticism. I mean, you go into coaching, know that, and I, I still get it today. I got some great feedback at halftime in the Japan game the other night. <laughs> you know, that was pretty direct from the fans. So it's, it's not like it's not like I'm living in this bubble. So you kind of. Uh, accept that but I wasn't going to accept that you know uh, from him or anyone else at the time and and that became a sort of a real millstone around my neck because people then judged me just on that alone at the time and 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 the A-League was kind of going Mm. in one direction and I was looked at well we've left all that behind he's NSL he's old you know old soccer they called it at the time this was new football these are the guys we've got to leave behind if the game is going to prosper and I fell into that category somehow um, so then I applied for a couple of jobs. I remember one job I actually I was told I got um, the Adelaide job and uh, um, interviewed. Uh, selection panel said, "Yep, he's our preferred candidate." And the owner at the time said, "No, I've seen that interview. He's not going to get the job." So you kind of go, "Well, wow. what what next? You know, where do you go from?" There's only at the time there was what eight eight A League clubs, seven in Australia. If that's kind of me locked out of that market where's where's the next step so how how are you dealing with this yeah i was family young family yeah and and that well i just to be honest i just got married um just got married again so it was literally i'll be coaching one of these national soccer teams and i'll be king of the a-league don't worry about it we've got a future yeah um and god bless them yeah my wife um no uh, georgia yeah she we just got married and she um you know she she had real belief and I, i had a real good network of friends who who they just said mate you you love this game too much you're too smart it'll happen for you and and I never I never wavered in that I always knew look you know what if if Australia doesn't want me I'll go overseas I ended up going to Greece for a little while but if it wasn't going to happen here it was going to happen somewhere and I had absolute belief that I'd be successful because the knowledge I'd gained and where I was in terms of my um you know sort of my coaching uh, journey I I I knew all I needed was an opportunity. I preferred it to be here, but if it wasn't going to be here, then I was, um, you know, I was going to go and explore it myself. Now, uh, thankfully for me, I'd got some work on, on, you know, on TV with Fox Sports, and that kept me in the public profile. And I think people started hearing me talk about the game, and slowly perceptions began to, to change. Um, but it was it was like eighteen months of thinking. Well, yeah, maybe um, maybe this course is going to take me somewhere else. You go to Greece and. You're coaching over there. You come back and take over the Brisbane Roar, who, again, I'm not... I think think you've been 39 games without a loss at one point. 36, yeah. 36, they're calling you Raw Salona after Barcelona. I was looking at some highlights last night. You go into the the, uh, the A-League grand final against Central Coast Mariners, you're the hot favourites. 
goes to extra time. You two zip down, it's bugger all. It's an extraordinary. I actually watched the last fifteen minutes it's last brilliant, night. Isn't it? Yeah. You two nil down. Yeah. It's uh, you yeah. get the equalised and you win on penalties. It was one of the. It was probably one of the top five sporting moments in Australia that year, just for the emotion. Absolutely, yeah. It was, and it was it. And for me, it was. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was a funny time where, you know, we like I said we'd built this team that that you know um, played a different way. Team, it was. It was an it attacking was, yeah, team. Yeah, it was yeah. the way that we think as Australians we want to see our sport play. Absolutely spot on. And that was that was the seed in my head. It was that. That's what I wanted to do. Wherever I was going to go, that's how we were going to play. And uh, like you said, you, you, you kind of go through the season. We'd, we'd lost one game all year. It was down here to Melbourne Victory. I think it was the third or fourth game of the year. Hadn't lost since then. You get to the grand final, still playing fantastic football, and you're 2-0 down with four minutes to go. And in any, any other comp in the world, you've won the comp because... Yeah, because we were first by a mile. You don't play these grand no, finals that's right. that we yeah. play here. But... I kind of like the finals yeah, concept because I, 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 I grew it. up here yeah. and, and every championship I've won has been in the grand final. I love that. And uh, so I've four, kind of. Four minutes to go, you two zip down. Yeah, and you're kind of going, <laughs> nah, this isn't right. You know, the, <laughs> the football gods have gone to sleep here. They're, they're over the other side of the world. They've got to come back and, and just make sure this is righted. But I, I, there's a real sense of calm around me, you know, even the players. And then if you watch that that last bit and they show both benches and you see the Central Coast bench with uh, Graham Arnold who's mm. is a great friend of mine and they're sort of up off the bench they're panicking they're, they're looking at their watches and, and they're 2-0 up yeah. and and with us we're kind of all pretty composed even the way we're playing our football you know our goalkeeper gets a ball he throws it out and I remember the commentary at the time they're saying at some stage they've just got to launch it long and it wasn't our mantra you know we were going to play our football and it was almost like a sense of inevitability that when we got the corner with, you know, literally no time on the clock, you're going, we're going to score here and then we're going to win this again. <laughs> it's going to be a ridiculous ending, but it was. this is the way it's supposed to be, yeah. And, uh, yeah, look, I, I had a great couple of years there and, uh, you know, for me, you know, people say it was that vindication. It had, it had nothing to do with vindication. It just it gave me that release for all this knowledge I had that, all right, this is, this is my kind of been given a, a blank canvas and I can start doing what I want to do, you know. At which you did and you won again. So you won two on the trot there. You mm. came down to Betsy in the World Melbourne. You in Melbourne victory. Absolutely, We're thinking the local yeah. boys come home. It's all <laughs> fantastic. And then boom, what, what happens? You get a phone call, you get an email, a fax. Yeah. What happens? Well, that, that's the thing. So, you know, like I said, Newly married back in two thousand five six, I, I took my wife to Greece, and then, and then you know a year later I've taken her to Brisbane, and then I've said to her, you know, at the end of the two years of Brisbane, she just got comfortable. I go, look, Melbourne Victory, you're coming, knocking on the door. We can go back to Melbourne, we can settle down. I reckon I'll, you know, they're the biggest club. If I have success there, we can stay there, you know, for as long as we want. She goes, yeah, it's a good idea. Let's go back to Melbourne. And as you said, twelve months later, I remember we're sitting. Uh, we're sitting in bed because um, Australia were playing France and it was early morning. They'd been beaten 6-0 by Brazil uh, not too long ago. Mm. And uh, I'm sitting there and it's 5-0 and then 6-0 and the final whistle goes and it's like 6am. And I just looked at her and I said, you know what, I, I might be getting a phone call, I think. Um, because at the time there was a few people talking about... It was. Um, you know, change and if, it, if they were going to go Australian, obviously there was only one or two options. And this is like, you know, 12 months. Uh, the second year at Victory was just starting. We'd just missed out on the grand final the first year. I'd built the team to, to really have a crack that year. And I thought, this call may, may happen, you know. And I could just see it shaking her head, um, going, here we go again, we're going to have to move to Sydney now. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, they came calling and, and it wasn't a great time because I really wanted to have success at Victory. Yeah. I, I kind of... When I missed the boat with them the first time, seeing how big they'd come, it's my hometown, uh, that that should be my job. And I, I, I kind of never thought I'd get a look in. So when I got it, I thought, yeah, I'd love to do this in Melbourne. Um, but the national team job came and, and you go, well, how many times is it going to come around? Uh, 
they were at a point where they wanted change, massive change, which is exactly the the criteria I love, where you know, I'm allowed to come in and kind of shake things up. And it was a tough decision to leave, but um, in the end, I thought, you know, I've got to take it. Forgive me, is, you, is your father still alive? Or not? Yeah, yeah, he's still alive. He's, he's, you know, he's not in the best health, but he's. So, uh, so, so do you ring him, or, or how? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I rang him and said, you know. Um, the national team's come calling and uh, look he yeah obviously he was pretty blown away with it and <laughs> um, you know he's, he's probably sitting there going well you know that decision he made 40 years ago um, maybe didn't give him a better life because I think he all he could remember was working hard but the reason he came here was finally being vindicated that his boy is now, you know, coaching the, the national team and uh, all those sort of dreams we had uh, together, I guess, as I was growing up, were, didn't get fulfilled as a player, but now we're getting fulfilled uh, as a coach. Did you miss last week of the Howie Games episode? Shame on you. It featured former Aussie captain Michael Clark. I'd no ambition at all to ever be vice captain or captain of Australia. Right. But the perception was, and I understand this now, the perception was because I think, and maybe it was more than this, but I think it was naturally because of just the age difference between Ricky and I, it made sense for the media Mm. and the public to assume that I was going to take his spot. Yep. Let alone before I'd captained a game or before anybody saw if I was, I was any good at it. I think just that the age difference, people just assumed that was the case. But I would say openly that I never had a contract and never had a Cricket Australia contract that said, you are the next captain. Mm. So until I got that job, I never expected to captain Australia. I never expected to be vice captain of Australia. Nice work, Clarkie. Back to Ange. What's his surname, Penguin? Poskdokogalu. As you know, Ange, I've got a job where I'm lucky enough to go and see a lot of sporting events across all different things, and still the best sporting event I've ever seen in my life. Was, oh, the second was Cathy Freeman. I, I was working at the Olympics in Sydney in 2000. Yeah. I, I snuck in and sat down on the finish line, but the best thing I've ever seen was the um, Australia-Uruguay game up in Sydney when we scored in penalties and the local boy from down here, Vaduka, missed the penalty and it was going back and forth, and I, there's something about the passion involved and it, it's here in Australia now when the national team plays yeah, yeah. it must be an extraordinary thing to be the man that is leading that whole show it is it is mate I, I and and I agree with you I think um, the the national team's now been embraced as you know, as as our own the same way as the wallabies are or yep. you know the, the the Australian Test cricket team or, or all of our national teams and in, like some said, way, in some ways even more so yeah because it's so international absolutely like, I think when we run out on a pitch in a World Cup it is just must watch yeah, it is must watch and 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 that's why I kind of say in the book that the the goal now is to win one because I just think I mean you spoke about you know Kathy Freeman and and I I, I kind of related also to the America's Cup there was a time where you say well you know no other country can really win an America's Cup mm. Australia certainly can't win an America's Cup I can imagine Kathy Freeman as a young Aboriginal girl no one told her you could win an Olympic gold medal it's just out of the world out of this world and I think the World Cup's the same I think. You know, we sit here and we say we can't win a World Cup. Well, we can, but imagine what it would do for us as a nation if we did win it, you know, and and knowing what we did know, because it does, it provides, you know, similar moments, I guess, for the nation, not just for the sport. And and like you said, like that Uruguay moment. um, Were you there? I was there. I was at the ground. I was working with, I was still part of the national team setup. And it's, it was such, you know, I remember walking out of that ground and I just thought, I never thought I'd see the sport in this space, you know, where the whole nation was just rejoicing that we'd finally got back. It was hugging blokes you didn't know. Yeah, it yeah, was at that, I, yeah. I was just grabbing this six-year-old yeah. boat beside me. He's yeah. got tears coming down his eyes. He was he was probably a Greek or Italian yeah, chap. Yeah, and it was yeah, just, yeah. I can remember the announcements around the ground, you must leave because public transport is going to close yeah, from yeah. Sydney Olympic yeah, Park. you've got to get out of here. Yeah. Well, there's a great, there's a great story about... Um, uh, that Mark Bresciano, who scored you know, the first goal yep. in, that, in that game. And when he scored, uh, he tells a story that uh, obviously he's similar background to me, Italian, and, uh, in terms of the immigrants. And, and his dad was a similar kind of father, not a lot of communication between them, and, but very proud of his son, whatever. And um, tells a story that he bumped into a guy you know, just a couple of years ago and he said, you know what, I was at the Uruguay game when you scored. And he goes, and we all went up and everyone was hugging, like you said, and, mm. and kissing each other. And there was just one bloke who just sitting there 
wasn't moving, slumped in his chair, and this bloke goes, I thought, oh, I'm sitting next to the only Uruguayan in the bloody stand, right? And I'm going, come on, mate. And then he goes, I felt so bad for him because I looked over and he was actually crying. And I wanted to say to him, look, yeah, it's all right. It's only 1-0, you know, you guys are still in it. And he just looked over and he goes, no, no, that's my son. Bresciano. It was oh, Bresh's wow. dad. And, and Bresh says he'd never seen his dad cry. And he goes, and when they told him that story, he kind of realised what it meant, even for his father, you know, that that game and that moment yeah, and what sport can do in terms of, you know, that that was such a big moment in, in the country's sort of existence and, and, and how the impact it had even on his, his dad, who obviously, you know, loved uh, the game. The, the, the World Cup. Well, firstly, how much footy do you watch? Because I've got the feeling that you've got your... Foxtel and your Satanta and I you're am, watching I, ridiculous amount, yeah. I, I can actually, I still, I love the game. I can watch it without being a coach. Like it, it's kind of still of a as a punter. You can yeah, still watch yeah, it. yeah. Oh, mate, sure. I go off because I'm a Liverpool supporter. Right. Mate, in the middle of the night, I'm going off. I'm, I'm giving the coach pelters and all that kind of stuff. The stuff I hate that comes my way. I, I, I can, I can watch it as a fan. I still love it. I mean, I love all my sport, but yeah, I can, I do. I have. You know, Bain TV, mate. I I troll the internet, getting some pretty dodgy feeds, yeah, with all sorts of things popping up that aren't. I'm not searching for, but um, yeah, but they're coming up because I I just, I just, I'll just watch anything. Yeah, I love it. Could you coach Liverpool one day? Yeah, look, why not? I mean, you know, you sit here and you go, no, it isn't going to happen. But Mm. if you told me I was kind of going to coach a national team one day, I probably said that wouldn't happen. I've never made too many plans, but. you know, like I, the game has uh, you know, taken me to some weird, and wonderful places, and I'm not going to question where, you know, where the, the next destination may or may not be. The World Cup, the last World Cup in uh, Brazil, we took on Chile, Spain, and uh, Netherlands, Chile, Netherlands, and Spain. Um, how do you view that campaign? Uh, again, as a sports fan, the thing that sticks in your mind is Tim Carr and that yeah. volley. Um, and I was looking at that again last night, and you don't react much on the sidelines, but. Oh yeah, that you was a special. Stoked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we look. We, we lost all three games, and, yep. and and yeah. At the end of the day, it's about results. We didn't get those, but I thought the manner in which we played, particularly the first two games, was really encouraging. We we obviously took a very young squad, a lot of who are just sort of maturing now. Three, you know, two or three years later, and um, it was a tough group, mate. Oh, when, oh. when when the draw came out, um, it was just a really tough group. Uh, it was the hardest probably group we could have got. Group of death. Big time, and we always manage to get the group of death somehow. But, <laughs> but, but, but this was the real group oh, of no, death. Got the group of death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, t- I tell the story in the book that you know I was at the draw and we were sitting there, and I remember trying to counsel um, David Gallup, who was with me. And obviously, uh, David's a, a league man, and I said to him, "Look, regardless of who we get, uh, the whole world's going to be watching. No facial expressions. Don't swear." Mate, when those three uh, countries came out, I wasn't worried about him. I'm going, what the hell? Seriously, this this can't be happening. But, um, but you know, I thought we handled ourselves really well. And that Dutch game was, you know, against the Netherlands was, you know, with two one up, you know, with an hour gone, and you're thinking, playing some great football, taking it to him and attacking football, absolutely, your football, your absolutely, football, yeah. yeah, against one of the you know, world powers and. And I said to the players before the game that you know, this is the one where we make the world take up stand notice and we almost got there, you know. Uh, we just lacked a little bit of experience and composure at vital moments. But I think that built belief because, it was, like I said, it was a young group um, and it was very early in the journey. I'd only had literally three games with them and they thought, OK, if we can do this after three games... Um, Let's follow this bloke because, you know, there's no doubt that within another four years that you know we can come back here and and really challenge people. And and it, even though it was three losses, it didn't feel like three losses. It felt like we were building something. You're getting me excited about that's Russia, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, Russia. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I went there for the Winter Olympics two years ago. I wouldn't get too excited about it. <laughs> going there as a joint engine. I'm a pretty open-minded character, but anyway, that's a whole another story. Yeah. The Asian Cup back here on Australian soil. I think it'll probably forever be looked back as one of the seminal moments. You know, we had the NSL, then we had the A League, um, then the Asian Cup final. We score through Massimo Longo, isn't it? Reasonably Correct, early doors. Yeah, yeah. We're into deep into injury time. 
you know, have you started picturing holding up the cup at this point? Do you oh, allow yourself mate, that? We're, we're up to the 93rd, 94th. Minute. 93rd, 94th. And, and, and literally the Asian Cup is where you are in, in proximity to me. I could almost touch it if I, right. if I, if I leaned out. The physical out. cup. It's the physical so cup because they brought, they brought it out for Just the presentation. Yeah. And it's kind of next to me. But yet my experience, you know, going back to what you are talking about with Brisbane, mm. in every grand final there was always a twist. And I remember saying to the players in the morning of the game, I said, something's going to happen out there today that none of us are planned for. And what we've got to fall back on is all the work we've done that we'll find a way. We will find a way because <laughs> that's the kind of team we are. Um, so I don't know what it's going to be. It might be a man sent off in the first minute. We might go a goal down. Whatever it is, um, just know that we can handle it. And I say that because it almost prepare myself that this isn't going to run the script. So 93, 94 minutes, I'm looking at 1-0, I've gone – there's something not right and I had an uneasy feeling about me and when they started attacking I kind of got this feeling of dread inside me that you know there's still a twist in this game I don't know what it's going to be and then they score and it was literally the last kick of the game because they score referee referee blows for full time we're going into extra time whole stadium's flat you know whole country's flat Correct. Not just the stadium. Absolutely. The country's flat. And I sense that. I'm flat. And and the players start walking over towards me for, for you know, the four or five minutes we have for the address before we go out there for extra time. I've had to walk away from the group because I'm thinking, look, I've got to frame something here. This is, this is the moment. I said to expect the unexpected. It's happened. And I'm kind of sitting there trying to frame a message in my hand. And I, as I'm doing that and I'm walked away from the group, the staff, everyone. I look over at the Koreans and they've gotten to their huddle, but they're spent. They're on the ground, they're getting fluids, they're getting massages. They'd given everything. I knew that that was their last kind of punch that they had in them. And as I looked at them, I kind of half inside me, I hoped, I go, when I turn around, I hope my boys are standing up. And I look up and every single one of them was on their feet. Not one of them had gone to ground. They're pushing the trainers away with the fluids. They're they're just waiting for me to talk to them. And I said, I I know what I've got to say. And I just walked over and I said, look, we've trained for this. They haven't. Um, we, We can go extra time and we can go further. We'll go as long as it takes for us to win this game. And the whole message during the whole tournament, I said, look, when they write the game of football in a book, like my book, there'll be a chapter that says 2015 Asian Cup. And I said to them, you're writing this story with every game you play. And just before I left the huddle, I just said to them, now you're going to make that ending unbelievable. And I knew we'd won at that moment, not because of what I'd said, but because they had the belief about everything we'd said that we'd prepared ourselves to go for as long as possible, as hard as possible. And in extra time, there was never any doubt we were going to, we were going to win the game. And to win the game, again, coming back to, I don't want to get too sort of, Esoteric or strange about it, but if there's one thing that Aussies and because of the backgrounds of people like your mm. old man come back to, it's it's never giving up in that fighting spirit. And it's Tommy Urich, and he's got two blokes on him. There's no, he's hemmed in on the line. In the best possible result, we get a pe- uh, corner, yeah. and somehow he gets around that, and Joyce bangs into the back of the net. It was a never-give-up goal. It was never should have been it, a goal. Correct. And, 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 and it kind of is the essence of who we were because if you That's look right. at that frame, next to James Troisi, about to tap the ball in is Jason Davidson, who's our left back. This is at the end of, you know, almost 120 minutes of football. Our, our defender is not thinking about, you know what, if I go up there and we don't score, I've got to run all the way back. And after running up and down this pitch, he's going, no, I'm going to go up there because we might score. And that was the, the kind of, I've said to him all along, that's going to be our football, that we won't th- worry about the repercussions as if we don't score, about <laughs> getting back or worrying about what might not happen. Let's make things happen. And, yeah, that goal kind of epitomised everything we, we, we want to be as a team. Um, the battle, the the winning of the battle in unlikely circumstances and then when the ball comes in the box that, no, we're not sitting back hoping this goes in, no, that we've got guys in there who are going to try and make it happen. And Again, it just it just created a great deal of, of belief within that group and, and, we, and, and we won something, you know. I mean, at, at the end of the day, if we're going to keep growing as a sport, we needed to, to put some trophies on the mantelpiece and that was, uh, that was a major trophy for us. 
So is the big man in charge at that point? Is he a celebrator? You, do you have a couple of beers? Do you, yeah. you go back yeah. to your heritage and start knocking back? Who's those? I remember still <laughs> Breaking a few plates. Well, and, that's yeah. it. Breaking plates. Because hitting had that big the cigar. Big cigar. Yeah. <laughs> How does Andrew no, celebrate? I'm, yeah, no, I'm no good, mate. I'm <laughs> right. no good. I'm, I'm kind of moving on to the next thing already. You uh, are. It's that yeah, quick, is it? Yeah, absolutely. And, the uh, curse of the coach. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's, a, there's an enormous sense of relief. Um enormous sense of satisfaction, particularly when you look around and you see the amount of people who are who are just jumping out of their skin, you know, firstly the players and then the staff and then, you know, you're kind of scanning the crowd looking for, I'm looking for my wife, my son, my, you know, my friends and you just get an enormous sense of satisfaction but there's a part of me that just won't let release, you know, and, and, and thinking about, all right, what's the next step? You know, what do we do tomorrow? Um, what's the next the mountain we need to, to conquer? And uh, it's kind of my coping mechanism. Mm. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a big night. And, and you know, if anything, I, I never sleep after games anyway, regardless. Um, uh, it was just one of those where... I think at some point I just collapsed and, and kind of had to sleep for a couple of days and that was my, my celebration. You've been great and people are going to read this book, Changing the Game, and they're going to jump right on board it. Um, just before we wind up um, with a question from one of my kids, which I'll get to in a moment, <laughs> but in a typical day, you know, we've, we're doing this, you've had a, uh, you've been to Saudi Arabia, you've played Japan here, I think you're off to Thailand next. Correct, yeah. Um, yeah. You've just lost their king actually today. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in your downtime now, how much time do you spend thinking about football and the game? Do you, like when you're out to dinner with your wife, are you 100% there or are you 28% thinking <laughs> no, about just, how you're going to stop the Thailand yeah, striker? Yeah, I've got, I've, got to, I've got to make sure I uh, say the right thing. Look, it, and uh, there's all, it's always somewhere. It's always there somewhere. I, I say to coaches all the time, they, they kind of, you know, especially young coaches who kind of seek counsel, I, I, I say to them that, it, it's it's not an occupation; it's a lifestyle choice. You know, unless okay. unless you embrace it and the fact that it's going to be twenty four seven. Because even if I don't want to engage, somebody will come and say, "Yeah, what about the game on Tuesday night? You know, what were you thinking in the first half?" Or, you know, and it, and it brings you back there anyway. Um, it's not that kind of you know clock on clock off job. And and I've embraced that a long time ago. I, I think I I do a good enough job to to be present, particularly with family. Um, kids and and my wife obviously and, and my friends but even with them they know that there'll be moments where yeah he's not listening <laughs> he's thinking about the dialogue yeah, 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 yeah. and i normally finish this i've yeah. got uh, a couple of young kids one uh the big penguin who's a four-year-old who woke up two years ago and <laughs> said he's changed his name from mac to the big penguin that's, that's just what that. he wants to do and my Good daughter my daughter is uh nicknamed the pickle for whatever reason <laughs> nice and i always tell them who i'm sitting down with um and one of them that's more enthusiastic about this particular um, situation asked a question. So this is uh, the pickle asking. Oh, the pickle, yeah, okay. The pickle asked a question of you, Ange. Okay. Hi, Ange. Pickle here. I don't always do what my daddy tells me to do. Do the Socceroos always do what you tell them to do? Good question. Good question. And 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 they do, but I have the same problem. The only time that I have zero control over anyone is in their household. <laughs> You're the same as me then. I am certainly not the boss at home and, and it's very hard to cope with because when I can get, you know, 30 or 40 blokes to absolutely, <laughs> uh, you know, hang on my every word and I go home and I just, and my the boys are running amok and my wife pretty much telling me what to do all the time. It's it's very hard. It's very difficult. But, uh, no, it's, um, you know, you, you kind of... I, I've I've gone the other way as a parent. I my old man was still is a pretty hard man. Mm. I I tell my kids I love them every day. I give them a hug. I'm worried I'm I'm growing them up to be too soft. To be fair, it's it's a fine line you you go because um, you know I think there's a bit of both in in that in terms of parenting. You know, you you don't want your kids to 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 think uh, unrealistically about what the world's about, yeah. but at the same time you just want to give them a cuddle, and I don't see them that much, so I, I I pretty much get told what to do. I'll let the pickle know. I'll yeah. let the pickle know. Ange, the book is called Changing the, the Game. The pickle is in charge. The, she, yeah, the she has my permission. <laughs> All right. I, I was a bit unsure how this would go today because we don't know each other that well. Yeah. I think we met once in a green room going into the Asian Cup and I said, we listen, did, yeah. they're probably all little fellas. Why don't you just play Josh Kennedy? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know who else was. I think Andy Marvel's in there and shook his head. Mate. He said, you should have said that to the coach. 
but you've been really generous with your time. As I said, I read the book last night. It's a great book, um, and it must be great to have the whole support of the country behind you. Thanks for having a chat in the Howie Games, and good luck as we move through towards the next phase, which is obviously Russia in 2018. Cheers, Howie. Enjoyed it. Thank good you, mate. Time. Thanks, bud. What about Ange Postacoglu? Great coach, great fella. Hope you really enjoyed that episode as much as I did sitting down with Ange. A lot of people have asked about the music on the Howie Games. Check out a fella by the name of Billy Mystic. He runs a surf camp in Jamaica. That's where the song was recorded. You can see him on Google, etc. Please continue to subscribe to the Howie Games. Tell everyone about it. Raters. The more people that listen, the better. Thanks always to our producer, Michael James, who gets us to air. Have a wonderful week. Until next Thursday, peace out. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.